you've got 700,000 horse carcasses a week. Hi, and welcome to Meet Your Heroes. I'm Audrey. And I'm Elliot. And this is the show where we ignore the very good conventional wisdom to never meet your heroes and instead get up close and personal with the lesser-known legacies and real-life bad behavior of some of history's most notable and beloved people. Before we get into this week's lesser-known legacy, um, I just wanted to pause at the top of the show to say hello to all of our new listeners. Ooh, new listeners. Yeah, um, there's a lot of you who are new all of a sudden, and that's super exciting. So, hello. And uh, love to thank... You know, the handful of folks who've actually emailed us with suggestions this week. Very exciting. And I know we say this at the end of the show in our outro, but if you're anything like me, once the show's over, I stop listening. Like, to the other podcasts. That's rude. Yeah, I know. It's not helpful. But (laughs) if folks are like me, rude and unhelpful, then um, I'd love to take this moment to just encourage you, new listeners, to please, in iTunes or wherever you're listening to this, wherever you're streaming your podcasts, to rate and review Meet Your Heroes. It helps other people find the show. It validates Audrey's very fragile ego. I am actually very vain. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's not a joke. It's very helpful. (laughs) I really appreciate it. (laughs) Yeah, I know we're laughing through the pain, but yeah, very, uh, very vain. Anyway, so if wherever you're listening to this, if you're doing chores, that's when I listen to all of my podcasts, or lounging on the couch on a Friday night, for example, or, uh, you know, it's hot. Maybe you're by the pool. By the pool, you say? By the pool. What a coincidence. I was in a pool once. Yeah, me too. I don't go in pools anymore. No, you really don't. Yeah, I got very, very sick the last time I spent a significant amount of time in a pool. It's a long story. Yeah, but I have not spent meaningful time in a pool since 2001. Yikes. Yeah. I know. 20 years. That's a long time. Yeah. It really cut my career. My burgeoning career is a lifeguard short, but... <laughs> <laughs> that it does. You don't have to You don't have to get in the water to be a lifeguard, do you? I mean, it helps if someone's drowning, certainly. <laughs> you don't have to. I do. Se. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, I, I mean, that. I never rescued anyone. It's a small town pool. I'm just saying, I guess I could stand in the heat in a bathing suit for four to six hours at a time and maintain a burgeoning lifeguard career at this point. Okay. If you're interested, it's an option. It I just is. don't want you to rule it out is all. It is not ruled out. It is my it's my backup plan. Okay. Okay. That's fair. I still swim in pools. You do. Uh, I was in a pool the other day and I realized there was this game going on and I had always played a kid. I had no clue how it was related to the actual person it's named after. And because we're in summer and people are in pools and playing this game, I was like, you know what? Sounds like a perfect episode to me. I also have no idea the history of the game that I know you're talking about because I know the title of this episode. But (laughs) do you want to go ahead and enlighten the audience in case they didn't read? Sure, sure. This week's hero, Marco Polo. What do you know about Marco Polo? Very, very little. I'm sure that is a surprise to you. (laughs) Explorer? 
Yes. Yes, and Explorer. Literally the first word of my notes here, it says Marco Polo. It's a new line. And then below that, it says Explorer. So you got that far. <laughs> like Dora. So it's yes. like the same category. No, actually with Dora, it's spelled with an A? Uh, correct. I He's just an mean Explorer. Like, I mean the occupation. <laughs> yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Um, I also know the game and the app. Oh, yeah. There is an, it's a video chat app called Marco Polo, too. Yeah, it's like um, like walkie-talkies, but it's like video chat. And I love it. That's all I know. Okay. Well, if people have slightly more knowledge, Mm -hmm. but uh, still just general awareness, they may know that Marco Polo did travel to China and maybe, uh, according to some, is credited as being the first European to travel to China. Where in Europe is Marco Polo from? Sounds Italian. Is it Italian? Yes. Okay. Yes. In in the vicinity, as we'll get into, uh, not quite Italian, maybe. Okay. But close. There are some stories that he, in fact, potentially brought pasta from Asia to Italy. As in introduced the concept of pasta As in to Italy? introduced the concept of pasta to Italy. How old is this person? I thought this was like 11th, 12th century, maybe later than that even. I mean, you're right, actually. It is it is the 11th century. Wow. Um, yes, and it was also, there is a Netflix original series called Marco Polo. Mm. About Marco Polo the Explorer. Mm. Huge financial and critical flop. <laughs> 33% on Rotten Tomatoes. Lost $200 million what? for the first season. Yeah. Not a good show, apparently. But maybe, I, honestly, I heard the second season gets better, but still terrible first season. After losing $200 million, it got renewed for a second season. It did. It we're did. on episode like 75, and we're barely hanging on to season <laughs> one. And we're financing this ourselves. Yeah, it's true. It's true. <laughs> Although if you're an investor who's really looking to get in the ground floor of some uh, dubiously accurate history, let <laughs> us know. We're open to it. But other than about the TV show, are any of the things I said true? Who knows? <laughs> it was the 11th century. Let's find out. <laughs> so as we talk about this uh, claim that he's the first European to Asia, before we get into him, it... I started reading this and I was like, what does that mean? Because I I have this like background awareness, right? Like humans came from Africa mm-hmm. and basically everybody came from Africa around the same time. Mm-hmm. And so when you say like, oh, are you the first person to get there? Like somebody got there before you, right? For sure. But like what they're saying is since we had the concept of Europeans, yeah. he's the first person. Because I clarified this for myself, humans are about 300,000 years old. Okay. That's like the human species the first Homo sapien mm-hmm. that we got in the fossil records. Okay. And for the first 250,000 years of that, we're just hanging out in Africa. Oh, okay. Not many of us. No, not a lot. Took a while to hit critical mass, spread, start exploring. Spread, I mean, there's a lot of space in Africa. It's it's very large. Oh, for sure. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> so, we're, so we're hanging out in Africa for 250,000 years and, and, like, the the continents were still a little bit more mushed together at that point. No. Okay. So, right? <laughs> no. So, with our plate tectonics here, okay. uh, <laughs> those, those, they were all very smushed together for a very long time. Uh-huh. But we're talking on the order of millions of years, and we're definitely in, like, the last 300,000 years here. Okay. So... The continents have settled. They found they're apart. They're separate. I mean, they're still moving today. They're just much closer to where they are today than they were yes, okay. to being smushed together. Fair enough. 50,000 years ago. So it goes 250,000 years. And then then about 50,000 years ago, people start wandering around, spreading into Asia and Europe. So the idea of like an, 
uh, an Asian person or a European person only like even makes any sense 50,000 years ago. Okay. And then eventually, if you hang around for another like 38,000 years, we build our first cities where there's actually like a place to be from. Agriculture. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then 7,000 years later after that, people start writing stuff down. And then like 4,000 years after that, we get Marco Polo. Okay. Okay. I'm with you. I am so, on this timeline. The year is 1224. And on September 15th, young Marco Polo was born. My man, that's a 13th century. Oh, yeah, it is the 13th. <laughs> I kept saying 11th or 12th, didn't I? Yeah. It's all right. It's all right. It's all right. Yep. Yep. This is the 1200, 12th century thing always messes with me. But you're right. It's 13th century. It is. So, you know what that means. Something about rocks. Time for Elliot's <laughs> Geology Corner. <laughs> He is born in September, which means, of course, that his birthstone is... Sapphire. That's right, sapphire. I actually wasn't listening. What day in September? September 15th. Oh, okay, Virgo. Ooh, interesting. Hey, 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 you're jacking my style here. (laughs) Back off. Sapphire, interesting. Sapphire. Uh, So it's a variety of the mineral corundum. Mm -hmm. It has aluminum oxide with trace elements like iron and titanium, sometimes even chromium or magnesium. Wow. Uh, typically blue, but mm-hmm. there are natural sapphires in yellow, purple, orange, green. Do you know why there are never any red sapphires? Because those are technically rubies? Exactly. Yeah. They're identical things, <laughs> but if they're red, you call them something different. Yeah, there's like, quote unquote, pink sapphires or pink rubies, and everybody's like, that's the exact same thing. Yes. It mm-hmm. is. It's just a sapphire or yeah. whatever it is. Also interesting, second strongest gemstone in the world. So we find ourselves in September in Venice. Little Marco was born. Venice at the time is the capital of the Venetian Republic. Mm-hmm. So this is, uh, there is not yet in Italy, but there is this city-state of Venice, and it's got the, it's got a very large territory. It's not just like the metropolitan area of Venice today. It is a lot of area around that, plus territory in other countries as well. Mm. Huge trading hub, naval power. But in the geopolitical world here, we're talking cities versus countries. Got it, got it. Lil Marco here, not clear what his nationality is. He could be Venetian, like the general group of people we would consider Italian heritage today. He could also be Croatian. There's parts of Croatia that are part of this Venetian territory. Hmm. So we're not exactly sure. But we do know he had a wealthy family. So his dad, Niccolo, and his uncle, Maffeo, were both merchants. <laughs> okay. Confusingly, he also had uh, an uncle, Marco, who's not part of the story at all. And his uncle Marco had a father. His grandfather is also named Marco. <laughs> okay. Also not part of the story at all. So two other Marco Polos in the family. We're not going to talk about either of them. That would get confusing. It would. Uh, and they're not really important to the story. But the two that we are talking about, Niccolo <laughs> and Maffeo, they are the merchants and like explorers of the family. Niccolo and Maffeo hanging out at home. Little Marco is just about to be born. And the dad and the brother are like, Okay, we're going on this little uh, merchant trip here. We'll see you soon. I bet they don't. Peace. And then they leave. Marco's born. Doesn't know who his dad is. Well, knows, but like has never <laughs> met his dad. Sure. The mom knows. Then his mom dies. Oh, no. So he got no parents, living with aunts and uncles. Wait, does the dad really never come back? We're going to see. Oh, okay. That uh, was unclear. Yes. So right now, you put yourself in Marco's shoes. Dad never met him. Mom's dead. Living with aunt and uncle. Getting a good education, still wealthy, sure, but like no real family to speak of. Yikes. One year turns into five, five years turn into ten, 
Whoa. 10 years turned to 15. Little Marco here is about to be teenager Marco at this point. So are we done calling him Little Marco? Because every time you say that, I think of Marco Rubio because of the four years that (laughs) Trump called him Little Marco. Yes, yes, yes. He did call him Little Marco. (laughs) Well, you can imagine a tiny Little Marco Rubio here in his place. that's much worse. (laughs) He kind of does. So the thing that they do have in common, though, is both of them kind of have a punchable face. Oh, yeah. So it's not super off. Sure. Interchangeable faces. Yes. But anyway, now he's he's medium-sized Marco. Yes, he's medium-sized Marco, 15 years old, and lo and behold, who's pulling up but Niccolo and Maffeo, his what? dad and uncle, coming back. After 15 years? After 15 years. And they're like, where were you? <laughs> and they're like, okay. And they're like, oh man, it's a wild story. Uh, so the dad and uncle say, here, we've got this letter for the Pope. Um <laughs> You leave, you show up 15 (laughs) years later, first order of business, straight to the Pope. Yes. Yeah, well, not straight to the Pope because they came home, but they're like, we need to get this letter to the Pope. Mm. And everybody around them at home in Venice is like, there is no Pope. Pope's dead. What? We haven't picked a Pope yet. And they're like, oh, okay, okay. They're like, wait, why do you have a letter to the Pope? And they're like, okay, so let's go back a little bit. So they had left, and they had wanted to, They had left from Venice to go trade at Constantinople. Constantinople, Istanbul today, mm-hmm. made famous by the song, was Istanbul. Now it's Constantinople, but, no, but now it's actually Istanbul. Okay. Um, anyway, they had been trading. They went to go there. And this had been a city at the heart of the Crusades. Mm-hmm. So the dad and the uncle go there, and they're, like, trading. And Venice was, like, one of these big powers in the Crusades that had, like, taken this city. And so Venice was in control of it. And for several hundred years, they are, like, running this major trading and merchant city. But it had been the largest and wealthiest city in Europe, and it really started to decline since the Venetians took over. When Niccolo and Maffeo show up, it is, it is kind of on the down and out. It's not doing so well. Mm. The Crusades will do that to you. Yes. And the Byzantine Empire that had been there. So this city had been the capital of the Roman Empire and the Byzantine Empire. And it was not doing so well under this new, like, Venetian rule. I mean, at that point, it's like a cycle. You just have a few hundred years before the the entire empire collapses. Yes. I mean, like this. They're right on the end of it. They're right. They they have this sense that they're on the tail end and they start to feel the political winds shifting a bit. Uh-uh. So even though the trading was good, they preemptively basically sell all their stock, everything that they have to trade. And they and they trade it. They turn it into jewels. OK. And then they start sewing the jewels into their coats like real like. Cayman Islands bank account style for the time, right? Sure. It's like, how do you move money without getting noticed? You got to sew your jewels into your coats here. So they like hide all their money in jewels. They kind of in the in the middle of the night kind of just like slip out being like, even though we're Venetian and the Venetians are running this place, something feels off. Mm. And so they leave and start traveling out to the direction of like where Iran, Persia at the time. Okay. Turns out their timing is good because... Just a few weeks afterwards, the Byzantine Empire returns, takes over. Anybody who's Venetian in the city, they poke their eyes out. Wow. Like, they're they're seriously upset, it turns out. Listen, if you collapsed my empire and I came back to avenge my empire, that feels like a place to start. Yes. So, uh, dead and uncle are now traveling over land away from Constantinople. Uh, they don't have a ship. They they have their money in their coat, but they and they have their eyeballs, which is major 
improvement over not having them. <laughs> um, but they don't really have like a business to keep going. Okay. And so they leave for Asia and they begin traveling by land. They stumble upon Kublai Khan. Now, not Kublai Khan, Kublai Khan. There's a famous poem in English about Kublai Khan, and it rhymes better, but his actual name was Kublai Khan. Oh. Yes. Same person. Got it. Different pronunciation. I know nothing about either. Kublai Khan is the grandson of Genghis Khan. That makes sense. Asia for a long time had been just a bunch of like very disparate tribes and nomadic people, some along the coast, some along the Mongol area, which is like the north of China. Genghis Khan like conquered the entire continent. He builds literally the largest land empire the world has ever known. Conquered is like a very generous term for genocide. I mean, there's a lot of killing. He oh, takes so much killing. Yes. Not a nice guy. Uh, does unite it into one empire for the first time in history. Well, if your other option is to have like an, a complete obliteration of your entire family while you watch, it feels like you would try and unite under that person. Yes. Yes. And they did. And then there was some turmoil. We're now to Genghis Khan's grandson. All right. So the younger Khan uh-huh. meets Niccolo Maffeo and you're like, hey, we were traders, but... um. Do you, do you have stuff to trade? And he's like, oh, yeah. And it turns out the younger Khan is very interested in learning about the West. He's like a curious person. He's a mm-hmm. scholar. He's like, he's like, oh, Westerners, we, we don't get a lot of you here. It turns, like, <laughs> it turns out they may actually be the first Europeans that we have any record of actually getting to Asia. Marco Polo's dad. Yes, his dad Got and his it. uncle. <laughs> um, but there is a Silk Road where they've been like, you know, exchanging, like they've been trading uh, some goods back and forth. But it usually through this like middle section of Persia, the Middle East, mm-hmm. is like this ground where a lot of the trading would happen and then it gets passed off to Europe. Europe usually Europeans don't travel all the way to Asia. Got it. So like to have real live Europeans in Asia, the Khan is like, oh, interesting. Okay, let's talk. So they hang out there for a while, uh, do some trading, and then basically leave. That takes them 15 years. I was going to say, what's a while? Is the scale 15 years? Yeah. So they were, they were in Constantinople <laughs> for a, a while to begin with. But like traveling is pretty slow. And yeah. do they go back and get their boat to get home and no. it was still there or do they get a new boat? So you know what? Ro- These are details. The Silk Road is all overland, right? Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So, so basically, until you get back to Constantinople, you can't get a boat back to the Mediterranean, back to Venice. Okay. You, you basically got to go, Constantinople is your closest bet. You could also go down to like where Jerusalem and Lebanon and present-day Israel are okay. and get to the Mediterranean that way. Mm-hmm. But usually these people were going up through Constantinople and like the Black Sea or yeah, the Black Sea up there. Anyway, they get back finally, and they're like, so we got, so anyway, one of the things that Kublai Khan gave us is this letter to the Pope. <laughs> oh my gosh. He, he really wants to like talk to the Pope. So, um, and he also asks that we, he sends a hundred different missionaries like that are, that are experts in all these different subjects. He really wants to like learn from the West. Wow. And they're like, okay, uh, the Pope is dead. Um, <laughs> so what, uh, what are we going to do? Uh, and they're like, okay, we'll figure it out. So they... They're like they take a break. They kind of have a vacation for a little while. They're waiting for a pope to get selected, and no pope is getting chosen. And they end up waiting around for like a whole year, mm. and just like they can't choose a pope. There's this big like disagreement. There's all these bishops that are all about like, oh, I want the Italian one. And there's all these French bishops that are like, no, we want the French one, and they fight for a while. It's a lot going on in Marco's teenage years. Yes. But he's like, okay, I got to see this for, for myself. Are you going back? If you're going back, I want to come with you. His dad and uncle are like, okay, we're going to go back and you can come. So at 15, now teenager Marco heads out with this dad and uncle 
they they take a ship out of Venice and they go to Acre, which is like on the it's by Jerusalem. It's kind of like the where Israel is now in the Middle East. I love how you're looking me in the eye, explaining yeah. all of this as if I know anything about geography, as <laughs> if you don't know that that is my very worst subject. Okay, okay, put it this way. dead in the eyes. Mediterranean Sea. I, I'm familiar with the big landmarks. You're talking cities okay. here. You're talking directions. Okay, so there's a boot, right? I'm the familiar. boot is Italy. Yes. Okay, so Venice, if you're looking at the map with north up, mm-hmm. Venice is on the right side of the boot. Okay, I trust you. And it's not on the boot. It's actually on the, like... It's in the water of the boot. Well, it... Some canals. Yes, right, so on the right. <laughs> so they take a ship into the Mediterranean. Got it. And they go right. Okay. Until they hit the edge of the water. Okay. It's way easier to travel by ship, so they go as far as they can in the ship. Okay. That gets them to right around where Acre is, which is this Middle Eastern city. Okay. They are going to, like, get ready for this very long, hard land journey from there. So they're hanging out for a few months in Acre, and they're hanging out with the most important people there because they're, like, fancy, wealthy merchants. You might say they're merchants of Venice. They are merchants of Venice. What do you know? Right around that 14th century. Yeah, getting close to it. <laughs> so as they are hanging out in Nacre, they hang out with the archbishop, who is like the you know the fanciest church guy there. Mm-hmm. And they're commiserating over the fact that the pope's dead and there's no <laughs> other pope. And they're like, damn, we had this badass letter to give him from this guy that nobody's <laughs> ever talked to in the European world. Like, that's a shame. And they're like, yeah, sucks, man. Sorry. Um, <laughs> so they talk about it. They're like, okay, cool. We're going to go on this trip. Then they leave over land, and they start going to the Middle East. And now they're going to go again to the right, to the east, and south a little bit. Okay. Right? And they're going to near present-day Dubai. It's Hormuz. It's, it's like, you know, at the tip of Saudi Arabia. Uh-huh. So they're going down very far. Takes them months, right? This is like desert journey, riding on the backs of camels. It is way less comfortable than riding in a ship over water for them. They're good at ships. They hate this. But they travel... 1,800 miles, wow. 3,000 kilometers, overland by camel. They get to Hormuz, and right as they're about to go over this strait and into, like, Asia proper, they find out that a pope has been selected. Time, or, like, news does not travel flat, fast back then. No. It this turns is, out, like, a three-month, four-month delay? Yes. They were going so slow <laughs> yeah. that as soon as they left, apparently, from Macre, a pope got selected, and just ships that were going around yeah, <laughs> got yeah, there yeah. before yeah, them. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the cruel irony is the guy who was selected to be pope was the archbishop bishop of a cray that they've been talking to but no. never actually showed the letter to. No. And it's like there's their boy. And he wasn't like, hey, I'm in the running. Why don't you just give me a little little peek? No, apparently it was a total surprise to him. He was, ended up being the compromise candidate and just like came out of nowhere because everybody's like, yeah, we can live with him, whatever. Let me tell you what you don't want to be. You do not want to be a surprise pope. <laughs> yes. Imagine getting that letter. Surprise, you're the Pope. You are our consolation Pope. Yeah, right? (laughs) But now he is the surprise Pope, which means he's going to have to go to the Vatican, which is not in the Middle East by Jerusalem. It's in Italy. And they're like, oh, damn, but we have this letter for him. (laughs) So, like, we got to catch him. So they start, um, as soon as they get there, they start this, like, 2,000-mile journey on camel again to try to get back to where they started in the Middle East to get him this letter. If I am in my car and I'm driving and I get to the end of our driveway and I realize there is something I've forgotten in the house, I will not turn around. <laughs> <She's> like, <laughs> I'm like, well, I guess that is, it's gone. I, <laughs> I guess I don't need sunglasses. Who needs a driver's license? It's, I won't even turn around and go back 40 feet. Yeah, well, you don't have the same kind of commitment to delivering your Pope's letters, apparently. I guess I do not. 
but they pick the right people for the job. The Polo Trio <laughs> makes their way back over Camel. Months later, comes back to where they got off the boat in the first place. No. And he's still there. He hasn't quite left yet. And they're like, hey, Archbishop Pope, um, here's your letter. And the letter from Kublai Khan says, like, I, you know, want to learn from the West. We have many things we could learn from. There's these, like, big seven topics like grammar and rhetoric and different sciences I want to learn about. I want you to send me... um, a hundred missionaries to become members of my court and that I can learn from and we can discuss these topics with. And the archbishop is like, cool, cool, cool. Uh, at the Vatican, they got a lot of people laying around. Unless y'all want to come back with me to the Vatican, <laughs> like back where you started in Italy for another couple of months, like best I can do is like these two friars. That I've got. <laughs> and they're like, what? And he's like, I got two guys I can send. And they're D-list. Yeah, like, these are not, not even, these not are even not the A-list. Yeah. yeah. And then the polos are like, uh, well, okay, if that's what you got. Plus the three of us makes five. Yeah. Okay, they're like, okay, we, we got our we got our group of five. Uh, we'll do it. And so the new pope gets on the ship and is like, awesome, great, have fun. <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming they took a letter, right? He wrote a letter or something, too. Anyway, so the, the pope leaves, and then the polos are like, to the two friars, are like, okay, y'all ready to go? And they're like, wait, ready to go where? <laughs> and like, oh, the Pope just said you were coming with us. And like, oh, where are we going? And they're like, Asia. And they're like, what's that? <laughs> and so, so these guys uh, who were just local friars had had no real idea that they had been volunteered for this. And so the, they reluctantly get dragged into it. And within like the first three days, they're both like, yeah, no thanks. No, we're leaving. We go back. And so they just slept. And so they end up with zero friars. Wow. Uh, definitely not 100 missionaries. And so now the polos are like, well, okay, we're going to have to do our best to explain this. But they're committed. They go back the same 1,800 miles, 3,000 kilometers. They ghosted this man. Like, what do they have to prove? But if you are an explorer trader, what else are you doing? Right? Like, this is the... Exploring and trading in places where genocide has not occurred. <laughs> this is the place where nobody knows what kind of goods and stuff they have firsthand. Right? This Got is it. like the... They're, they're doing the, you know, cutting edge research of the trading game in the day, right? Mm. Like, if they're committed to making it big, this they're is where it's going to happen. They're basically Elon Musk and SpaceX at this point. They got the means. What else do they have to do? Yeah, exactly. Go to space. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the most interesting thing they can do with their money. Leave the wife not She's y- dead. Yeah, exactly. She's not yapping at you anymore. But, like, the, <laughs> the aunts and uncles, like, just get a quick 15-year break from them, right? Like, mm-hmm. go see the road. In 15 years, that's like half your life back then. <laughs> it's true. It, so. is, it is not negligible. But they're, So they are committed, and they set back out. This They do this as much as they can, overland again, get to Hormuz, and then go through the strait, then keep going overland back up to present-day China. Got it. It is now six years after they left Venice. <laughs> wow. What it a lesser-known legacy. It's a lot. Yeah. Our middle, our, our middle teenage... Marco he, he's here. He's a man now. He's 21. He's a big He's a big Marco. Yeah, he's he's Marco. And he is definitely halfway through his life at 21 in the 13th <laughs> century. Yes. They finally reach Kublai Khan in Mongolia. Or do they? I have no idea. The first question, as you start to dig into this, is what happens while Marco Polo's there? But the quick follow-up question that Dr. Francis Wood asked in her 1995 book... Did Marco Polo go to China? (laughs) 
is did he actually go there at all or is this all a bunch of bullshit? So there is this case that Dr. Wood makes that basically all of the details that are in the rest of Marco Polo's stories, he could have basically been hanging out in Constantinople this whole time and just made this up and just lied about it to everybody. No fact checkers. No fact checkers there. No cell towers. You can't get pings. Yeah. You don't know where he is. Even though Europeans were not going to Asia a lot, right? There's this middle ground of Persia where you had Middle Eastern people that were going back and forth. And Mm -hmm. so it was kind of a hub between the two worlds. There's also this one inconvenient fact, which is that as much as we're going to hear about Marco Polo and and as important as he says he is, for all of the meticulous records that the Chinese government keeps about government affairs, Mm -hmm. Marco Polo's name never appears once. There is zero mention of him in any Chinese record. There's zero mention of his father. There's zero mention of his uncle. Zero mention of their trip. What if there was just no scribe on duty that day? He's there for a while, allegedly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and if you're the first and only European there, you you stand out. You get noticed. You would think. Even if the first one was his dad, like if if the first European ever comes back with his kid, (laughs) you would think that would get noticed too, but no. Okay. So Mm. Dr. Francis Wood makes his case in 95. Despite the fact that Marco Polo never shows up in their books, there are a lot of scholars who respond and push back pretty hard and say, actually, if you go back and look at the evidence, we do think he was there. So there are several details in his later writings that mention specific details that would be basically impossible for someone to know without going and being there at that time. It's like when the uh, police departments come across like a homicide scene and they withhold very specific details that only the murderer would know so that when the murderer says something offhand like oh yeah and they're blue shoelaces you know it's them you're just determined to make us into a true crime podcast is what you're oh, saying I'm, I'm very much not <laughs> i'm just saying it's very it this is a, a tried and true tactic yes if, if there's a specific detail that you couldn't know any other way it's actually very strong evidence that somebody was there mm-hmm. and this is what happens margo his later writings mention specific details about uh for example paper money which did not exist anywhere else in the world before this. Yeah, you just got jewels in your coat. Yeah, it's invented in China at this time. And, and not only does he like describe their paper money, he describes the specific way it's made out of which tree barks, the wow. regions it was used versus the regions where they were still using cows and other things for money. Very um, specific details. Yeah, how it, never been, how it was made, like the specific process. Okay. And they match up with the Chinese contemporary accounts. So there are those kinds of details. There's another one where at some point he's going to describe the sky during a certain time of year. And Marco Polo says that there was a star, quote, shaped like a sack. And it had a tail. Yeah, it turns out it was a comet. Oh, God. Yeah. A star shaped like a sack. They, 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 he, what he describes is basically a comet. This mm-hmm. comet was not visible from Europe at the time, but it was very mm-hmm. definitely visible in China at the time. Okay. Things like this mean that subsequent scholars agree pretty heavily, like pretty completely, that he was there. And what him not being in any of the records of the time from China, basically that says that However important he makes himself sound, mm-hmm. he is not very important to them. Yeah. He is like having a grand old time, but they don't really care or notice. Yeah, so, I mean, he can barely get a letter delivered to the Pope. Yes, right? And when he comes back, he brings no Pope evidence. Like, <laughs> he asked for 100 guys, and he's like, we had two, but they gave up a couple <laughs> days in. Uh, so they don't really think very highly of him. Got it. The thing that they do enjoy about Marco here is that when he shows up and you're 
like you can imagine this like 21 year old they're like where's the hundred guys we asked for <laughs> he's like okay so about that he tells this story apparently Kublai Khan thinks he's very entertaining what shared language do they have so I looked into this Everything I can find suggests that they did not have a shared language. But they could pantomime similarly. Yeah. Well, so Marco was, as part of his education, fluent in four languages. One of the things that you get with merchant money back in Venice is a lot of language training. Well, you don't have physics or chemistry at that point to really muck <laughs> up your education. <laughs> no. You've got like art, fishing, and languages. And languages he got. Mm-hmm. So one of the theories is that the reason that Marco is bigger in the popular imagination and was bigger in China, frankly, than even his dad and uncle were before is because with as many languages as he spoke, there were likely translators Mm. that had shared languages in the court. And so it was much easier, not just for him to communicate, but also apparently he was like more entertaining and fun. Mm. Uh, He told better stories. Yeah. And so they show up. They're like, okay, here, we we have this message for you from the Pope. Uh, He's like... Real sorry I couldn't send the 100 guys you wanted. Uh, here's your two. And they're like, yeah, but we don't have the two. And so then they like, you know, I'm sure that they accumulated some other goods along their overland journey. They ask, okay, we're going to go trade. Is there anything else you need? And Kubakan's like, yes, yes, there is. I think the languages you speak are kind of useful. So I uh, have a diplomatic mission for you. And he basically like sends him out to one of the more southern parts of China one of the other provinces. And he's like, could you go find out what's going on in this city? And they're like, oh, oh okay. So so they go and they, again, they're, they're traders. So like they go new places. They look for stuff that they don't have or they think are valuable. They travel over land through China. They're doing this. They come back to Kublai Khan. They're like, okay, great. We did your diplomatic work. And he's like, fantastic. They're like, all right, we'll see you later. He's like, I really like your stories. Could you tell me some more stories about your <laughs> mission? He's like, oh, okay. And so they tell him the mission stories. And he's like, cool. Okay, can we go? He's like, uh, well, I have another mission for you, actually. Uh, could you go down to, like, the southern co- southeastern coast? Mm. And I'm like, okay. So, so they go on the mission. They go back. There's, like, a salt mine thing. And so, like, oh, cool. We're going to train some salt. Mm, that That is, like, gold. Yeah. So it's, like, valuable. So, like, for okay, real. cool, cool, cool. So they come back and they tell the story to Kublai Khan. He's like, great, great, great. And like, can we go? He's like, actually, I got another diplomatic mission for no. you. It could be really handy for. <laughs> and so they keep, like, getting sent back on different missions. Again, they aren't important enough I to Kublai Khan to get written down in any of the at records. At this point, how are they not, like, recorded? This is the thing, right? You have to balance however important Marco is going to make himself sound later, and he's going to make himself sound important, uh, sure. with the fact that, like, nobody bothers to write down. So it sounds like he's kind of like an errand boy. I was going to say he's like basically funny. like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they they're pretty close to like the supreme leader, and so like they're you know they're not they're not hurting for anything, right? He's like, like they a have funny supplies. Intern. Like, yeah, he's like a funny get my intern. Coffee, go right? fax this paper. <laughs> yes, uh, he's a funny intern that every time he asks to leave, they're like, uh, actually go do this other thing for me. Right. This happens. It goes on and it starts, and then it goes on for two years. <laughs> okay. And then three. Oh no. And then four. <laughs> and then five. <laughs> And then 10. Whoa. And then 15. And his dad and everybody's still there? For 17 years. No. The three of them are just like going on missions, like little like errands what? for the con. And every time they're like, may we leave, please? <laughs> He's like, no, no, you can't. How is he keeping them there? Just military? Yeah. So we're going to, we'll get into like the descriptions of the military in a sec. But yeah, he's got like 
thousands of soldiers. So yeah, there's a, it is clear that you can't leave. You can't sneak out in the you night. Can't sneak out, right? You got thousands yeah. of miles of the Silk Road to like get back to anywhere approaching European civilization. You're like in China, China, and right. China's large. Yes. And so if he says no, and you just decide to leave, you're Where definitely you gonna, gonna go? die. Yeah, yeah, he's gonna kill you. So they're like, okay, and they're like, they're making money. They're they're doing interesting things, uh, but they would really like to have left like ten years ago. <laughs> sure. um, so. Eventually, there at this it, point, Marco Polo speaks five languages. Yes, right. <laughs> and they need to go back. There's a prince that is going to get married, and as part of this political alliance, he's going to the Chinese prince is going to get married off in Persia. Okay. And so the Polo see their chance. They're like, hey, 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 this has been super fun, <laughs> but you need him to go back for this big wedding. How about we go with him? We'll accompany him as like this last diplomatic mission. And it'll be our farewell. We'll help him get back safely. And finally, the Khan's like, okay, great. Go for it. So they leave from the east coast of China towards the north where the Mongol territory is. Mm-hmm. And they sail off. And so if you can imagine, again, you're looking at the map with the north facing up. Sure. They're leaving off the right side yes. of China, going, going around down. the bottom. Yeah. Right, going around the bottom of Only China. Only way to get there. They've got to go past not just the tip of China, but then they got to go past the tip of India, too. They do. To get back up to, to the Middle East, right? It's mm-hmm. a long journey. They leave on this trip with 14 ships Whoa. in this fleet because this is like a prince going to get married, right? It's like a big diplomatic thing. And you don't want to show up like a fool and not have all of the things you need for this very clearly arranged wedding. Exactly, right? You've got to, like, be forging diplomatic alliances and you've got to be, like, impressing whoever you're, you know... Right. It's like when you pack, like, 10 pairs of underwear for a three-day trip. Like, who needs it? You don't know. Uh, Do people do that? Uh, Yeah, that's a very relatable thing that other people are going to laugh at. Okay, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I will take your word for it. I'm sorry, mister. I only take a carry-on on on every single flight, no matter how long the trip is. You just can't trust them to take your baggage. (laughs) They're going to lose it. Eventually, they're going to lose it. It's like the law of averages. At this point, it's either zero underwear because they lost it or... 10 pairs of underwear, <laughs> and I live in abundance. You know what? I'm willing to take my chances. Or it's three in the carry-on, and you just rotate, goddammit. Just <laughs> rotate them. Okay, so they gather 14 ships. 14 ships, to Persia. 600 people. This trip does not go well. Oh, no. Uh, there's bad weather. There's marauders. All number of problems. They get attacked. They get into storms. Of this 600 people, only 18 survive. No. Everybody else is what? dead. They lose... All the ships except for one. What? Of the 18, though, all three polos survive. Oh, okay. And Uh, the prince? I don't know about the prince, actually. (laughs) I think maybe the prince. Either way, as soon as they get back to Hormuz, uh, you know, near where Dubai is now, like, basically, you get around India, the very first big port, right? They're like, we're done. (laughs) See you later. We're getting off this thing. We'll take the camels the rest of the way. (laughs) And so they leave them there. And they're like, okay, we're, we're escaped. They decide to travel overland not just right from there, like up Saudi Arabia to like where you could get to the edge of mm-hmm. the Mediterranean. They're mm-hmm. going to go all the way back up to Constantinople because what they're like, like we can't just go back to like where we saw our, our Acre dude, the archbishop. Like we need a city that has ships. Yeah. We need to go buy a ship. We're willing to risk our eyes. Yeah. We're willing to risk the eyes. We really need to like get there so we can sail back the rest of the way uh, or else it's going to take forever. Yikes. They travel over land. Now what was, you know, originally... Just like a 1,800 mile, 3,000 kilometer journey ends up being like 3,000 miles, 4,000 kilometers. Like it's long. 
What's a few extra thousand kilometers when you've been gone for 20 years? Right. <laughs> but finally, they get back to Constantinople. They get a ship. They have actually, like, even though they haven't been able to keep a ton of their cargo due to the debacle of getting the prince back over there. Sure. They do have a lot of wealth, jewels, all kinds of interesting things to trade that they've been able to hold on to. So the year is 1295. Uh, it has been 24 years <laughs> since they left. Yeah. <laughs> Much longer than intended. Uh-huh. That's 40 years on the road combined. Yes. Um, they had traveled almost 15,000 miles or 24,000 kilometers total. Wow. And they take their ship and they are and they bring it around the edge to back to Venice. Well, almost because right as they're getting there, (laughs) right as they're getting there, they get into a ship battle with a Genoan ship. So Genoa is one of the other city states that is on the other side of what we think of as Italy today. Uh huh. And it was like a naval power, too. And the two city-states were battling. And as they're going back to Venice, they're like, you're a Venice ship. And they shoot cannons at them and stuff and capture them. And they are taken into prison. At that point, they should be like, no, technically, we're a Chinese ship. (laughs) This is a Chinese ship. (laughs) Basically, at this point. uh, But no fool in those gentlemen's. They were like, nope, you can't get to Venice. After 24 years, they're captured and spend the next three years in prison. No. uh... They don't get back. They are stuck there so close to having made it home. And they're bored, as you can imagine. One of the things that they are doing is just like telling the stories of this wild ride they've been on for 24 years. And as they're telling the story, they find out that one of their fellow inmates is Rusticello de Pisa. Now, for those of us who aren't familiar with Rusticello de Pisa, he was very big. In the 13th century. Uh, Does he have a tower? <laughs> he's from a place that has a tower. <laughs> um, he was an author. Okay. He wrote romance novels. Ooh, scandalous. Yeah. In fact, so there are Arthurian romances, right? This, the tales of Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. Yes. Like, it is the original romance novel genre. Uh-huh. This guy wrote the first one. Ooh. So he's kind of a big deal. Yeah, he's kind of like uh, Mary Shelley. Yeah, yeah, like the progenitor of the genre. Of a genre, yeah. Arthur is his Frankenstein. I guess he is. But no longer. What? Because Rusticello hears this guy Marco, and he's like, oh, man, we got to write a book. (laughs) And Marco's like, okay. And so they're like, when we break out of here, we're writing a book. He's like, all right. So after several months of, like, recounting this thing, eventually... Rusticello's got it, making notes. After three years of being captured, they're released. They finally make it back to Venice. Hooray! Phew. And Rusticello's like, okay, I'm getting started. Marco does not write any of this book at all. It's written from his point of view. He writes not a word of it. It's all Rusticello. Big sections of this book are, I would say, (laughs) copy-pasted. Out of the Arthurian romance novels, like there's some like scenes where like this knight walks into the, like the round table chambers and like the, and talks mm-hmm. to Arthur. And if you compare it to the romance novels, it it is written one way, and it is almost word for word written to describe like what happened when they walked in to see Kublai Khan or whatever. Right? Got like it. Yeah. like they just he used all the same stuff, but it's not copy pasted because there's no printing press for another no. couple hundred years. Yeah, no. So he goes about writing this. It is incredibly labor intensive. Four years later. The book is finally released. They get to Venice. It's one book. There's only one of it. Yes. It's called The Travels of Marco Polo. They're like, yeah, don't lose it. No copies. <laughs> uh, and then they start copying it. They start copying it by hand. So it's all manuscripts. Yeah. Then you have like your interns copy it. But yes. You, at first, you just have one. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
even though this thing takes forever to copy <laughs> and it is being copied by hand. And it's mostly made up. It still spreads like wildfire. Of course. Yeah. Right. There is no authoritative version anymore, because unless you have this very first one, which we don't, there are tons of significant differences <laughs> from these early copies. Like somebody gets tired, skips a chapter or yeah. like rewrite stuff because they don't think it sounds very good. Like it is reconstructing this text is basically just like, you know, an exercise in textual criticism at that point. Right. Like there's Fanfic. No, yes. Um, there's only 150 copies in various languages that we still know about existing. And they're very different from each other. OK. What we do know, whether it was because of what Marco told him or what the Pisa like wrote down, whoever like put it to paper is definitely a liar. Like this oh. book is almost total bullshit. Sure. Um, sure. There is so much of this that is just absolutely wrong. But it varies in the ways that it's wrong. So some of the things like it describes uh, the Khan feasting uh, with 6,000 people every night. And then every night he has his pick from over 20,000 prostitutes. Sex workers. Uh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm quoting here. <laughs> I know. Um, it's a lot of people. You, how do you even pick at that point? You just throw a dart. Yeah. 20,000? And then you probably want the person next to the person you hit with the dart because yeah. they would be mad at you if you right. hit them with the dart. Fair enough. In the description of the Khan city, it's, quote, every gateway must be guarded by a thousand men. Like, come on. What are the last 400 even doing? Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, after the first 600 are guarding the gate, like, it's like, just imagine the construction site where people are just, you know... Waiting on one guy to finish <laughs> digging one hole. Yes, exactly. Yeah, And also, who's visiting? No one. They're scared of you, and Europe's not coming yet. No, there's no Europeans evading. Uh, it says the Great Khan receives gifts of more than 100,000 white horses and 5,000 elephants. Every day? Yeah. Every day, 5,000 elephants are showing up at his door. And 100,000 white horses. Knock, knock, knock. Just a like Here, every single year, there's, uh, what is that, like a million... That's a lot of math for me real fast. Yeah. Almost two million elephants showing up at your door every year. I just imagine if you, like, I just imagine, I picture a big city, right? And then in the back of the city, like in whatever their landfill would be, you've got 700,000 horse carcasses a week God. that are just like starting to pile up. And they're like, what do you do? Or, oh. Where else are we going to put them? These things are... It seems like that's like a little exaggerated, right? I God, I hope so. Yes. I hope that's an exaggeration. <laughs> Uh, the book also claims that Marco uh, was the governor of Yangzhou for three years. Mm, doesn't seem right. Governor of a city is like not a small thing in China at this point. And he's not in any of their records. He's not in any of their <laughs> record books. He's not even mentioned as like a friend of the emperor, much less the governor of a major city. Oof. He describes, Marco describes like showing up at a battle where this city was under siege by marauders. And the way Marco describes it. When he shows up, they're going to lose the battle. But then he's like, how about you build this trebuchet? And he shows them how to build a trebuchet. What? Ooh. Do you know what that is? Do you think a sound like this, what, ooh, means I know what that is? No, okay, it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> trebuchet is basically a catapult, but it's way better. Okay. At, at the end of the catapult, instead of a basket uh -huh. with uh, that you like put a heavy rock in and throw. Oh, is it one of those that has like spikes on it? No, it's got a sling. Oh. So you take a like a heavy piece of rope and put a sling mm on the end and then when it shoots forward you get a double motion the catapult arm goes up and then the slingshot and then and then the slingshot wraps around the top of the arm and shoots it even further yeah 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 I know um, what you're talking about anyway so he shows him how to build that and then they win the battle in, in the book that's all it takes um, the battle happened two years before he got there so like the, obviously not there are however Chinese records that say that there was a Muslim engineer who showed them how to build a trebuchet at some point 
So wrong on all accounts. Yeah. So not not him. <laughs> uh, maybe confusion in the Chinese records, but definitely not for that battle. It gets more outlandish from there. Marco Polo describes in his book. So we get back to this thing about like, did he introduce pasta, pasta. to Italy? No. Right? The answer is the no. Yeah. He, he describes in his book a food that was similar to lasagna. Ooh. But when he, he does, he uses a term that he already knew. Mm. So it's like he's not describing a new thing. Mm. Pasta had been invented in Italy a long time before he traveled to Asia. And it turns like out flour and water and eggs. That's yeah. in like all cultures. It's not that hard. It, yeah. It turns out the, the confusion, the only reason that there is even a myth that he brought pasta to Italy is because there was an American ad campaign in the 20s that like told the story of Marco Polo as bringing Italian or bringing Asian pasta to Italy. Yeah. And then apparently there's like a whole generation of the greatest generation in boomers <laughs> who like took this as fact based I mean, on the ads. Leave it to the American capitalist marketing system to fuck up history because yes. we'll do it. We don't <laughs> yeah. give a shit. Very, very easily. Like, yeah. With, with a very no problem little resistance. History. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We'll, whatever story we need, we'll take it. The stories kind of get more outlandish from there. He talks about like uh, meeting men with dog heads on an island at one point. Oh, God, that would be so cool. Uh, it would be. It, you know, there's there's interesting connections tied back to reality, though. So the island itself... Agamanenane is a very large island, and the people, quote, had heads like dogs with teeth and eyes likewise. Ooh. It turns out that on the islands between India and Sumatra, they still, to this day, practice tooth sharpening. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, there okay. May, so like, got he it. might have seen that and like, okay, I got a whole chapter on dog head people. Got it. Um, yes. But he also goes on to uh, describe the unicorns he saw okay. in his travels in China. You know what? I might believe that one. That <laughs> so, one's one of the more believable ones. Uh, 5,000 elephants a day? No. Unicorn? Maybe. Maybe. Unicorns and dragons. Maybe. Although, so he definitely calls them unicorns and dragons. So there were already words for them. Well, like, they're, they're deep in the mythology of Europe. Mm -hmm. But he's like, oh, I found them here in Asia. If you read his description, though, what he calls, he's like, he's like I saw unicorns and dragons in Asia. He definitely describes crocodiles and rhinoceroses. <laughs> no! <laughs> <laughs> Does it stop him? I too have seen unicorns and dragons then. Yes. He's just manifesting. He's man he's he's just going with it, right? He's got the yeah. right vibes. I'm mm -hmm. sure this is how it felt to him. Mm -hmm. He writes this book, or rather DePisa writes this book, right? <laughs> People are like, this is total bullshit. Yeah. Uh, they're like, there's absolutely no way. He actually introduces the word for millions when he's describing how wealthy the Khan is. Mm -hmm. he, he uses the word for millions. So he actually gets the nickname Marco Millions. Yeah. Uh, but not because of that. He uses the word, so it's distinctive, but they start using it because they accuse him of writing a book of just a million lies. Got it, got it. Um, yeah. So he is like Marco Millions, meaning like Marco the liar. Mm. All of this stuff is lies. But what that also means is that like anything that he was saying that was like actually in some way related to the truth, like, oh, here they have this thing called paper currency. You might really want to try that. People are like, that bullshit. <laughs> Telling you about paper currency and unicorns. No, thank you. And so they just like write off the whole thing. Wow. And so for hundreds of years, he's telling this story and people are like, this is sci-fi fantasy shit, right? Like this is not real. For Back the then they didn't have science though. So they called it something else. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> they just called it fantasy. Uh, yeah, so even though the, he actually, like, 
did seemingly go to these places and see a lot of interesting things. The fact that he just lied about so many of the details mean that people think the whole thing is pretend. And so even when he dies, uh, relatively well off, surrounded by family in 1324, he's, he's surrounded by family. He's like writing his will. He's like leaving things behind. And everybody around him still thinks he is just totally making it up. And he dies not for several hundred years would anybody come back and take what he said seriously. Mm. So even though I appreciate the commitment to delivering this letter and the commitment to getting the uh, the scholars to like build some bridges, mm-hmm. uh, I would say like the general lack of having a real plan, <laughs> uh, the fact that it it's taking you decades just to make your way there, uh, and and the overall like historical bullshit, which is completely the antithesis of the ethos of this podcast. Mm. I'd have to say Marco Polo is not my hero. Not my hero either. But you love a long game. You love like a long um, antic, if you will. Yes. It yes. seems like he had like 24 years to build these antics. He leaves. Yes. Fills his like little brain with stories and antics. Comes yep. back, sells it. People don't believe it. But then probably some American picked it up and was like, <laughs> this is fact. Yeah, and love it. We too have been been bamboozled and hustled, scammed, if you will. If you will. Marco Polo long game. Yeah. The long con uh Oh, that's the right word. Long con. Yes, the long con I have I have a particular a particular uh fondness for. Mm-hmm. It wasn't all con, right? Mostly it was just him just like clowning around. The long hyperbole. Yes. If you will. Yeah. Not a particularly terrible person, no. but um oh, the last thing. The Marco Polo game, the whole reason we started this off in the pool. Yeah. No relation to him. Yeah, I've seen different stories. So people tried to tie it back. Uh, There are some places that say that when he was traveling in the desert the first time. They would shout it. In sandstorms, they they would shout it. Or or some people put it that when they were traveling on the ships back when Mm. they were like doomed in that fleet of 16 with the prince, that like the fog was so thick, people would shout out Marco because they couldn't see him. And he was like, Polo. And then for, you know, 800 years, people are just like, oh, yeah, let's keep doing that. That's a fun game. No, (laughs) no. This game is a child's game that like people in the 20th century would play and somehow through maybe just like the fact that he wandered so blindly throughout the entire fucking world the whole time, (laughs) didn't know where he was heading, uh, it got association with him. But yeah, generally speaking, probably not a lost Middle Ages tradition tied to his adventures. If it's any consolation to Marco Polo, I too wander blindly all over this fucking planet (laughs) just trying to figure stuff out day by day. Doing the best we can. If people would like some company, perhaps some other episodes, some... Some witty commentary on the history of the world while they go about wandering blindly. Where can they find us? They can find us on social media at Your Heroes Pod or on our website at MeetYourHeroesPodcast.com. Yep, and please like, share, rate, review, spread the word, tell your friends. And until next week. Don't be a hero. Don't be a hero. Bye.